And one criticism I do have of our industry is that we don't sell ourselves enough. We are stopping the client making a big mistake or, or, or a money mistake. We're protecting a bank and their security. The level of work that we do, if we get it wrong, has quite a high consequence. What's the longest convincing you've ever... Years. Go on for years and years. You can, on a more complex, especially like with a leasehold property, you can have, I think it's 19 months we counted, 19 different parties all popping their two pennies into a transaction. A law firm making sort of 10% profit on their overall fee would be doing very well. Levels of insurance that you have to have in place to even conduct a conveyancing matter on its own extreme. Stu! Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hello. We've worked together for, well, since I started. Yeah. You were the yeah. first listener I worked with. Hopefully you'll be the last I work <laughs> with because I cannot deal with any new ones. <laughs> and we were meant to do this podcast probably every year since That's we, right. <laughs> we've been working together. Now it's yeah. finally happened. Yeah, finally got together. But at the point that I don't really do property much anymore. And uh, <laughs> the podcast isn't necessarily focused on property. Irony. But I know. But we're going to talk about property okay, because... Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's. I think the legal aspect of it is very interesting. I know it, it can okay. be. It can be boring and it can be very. Um, it's full of jargon, hard to yeah. understand. Yeah. But we're going to break some of that down today for people. Of course. And you know, I've bought lots of property. You've done all the convincing. Yeah. Done all sorts of weird legal bits. You know, mm-hmm. with the cottage that we did. So, I think it's it's still super interesting to. You know, we we're just talking about fraud off yeah. the off the um off the podcast and. I think it will blow people's minds how easy it is mm-hmm. to do certain things in this legal system, yeah. but how sometimes you can't even you know, get your driving license back in a month when you send it off, but you can do property fraud in, in a few weeks. So um, before we get into what you're doing now and the scale of your company, yeah. what were you doing before law and what got you into law? So after college, university... Uh, was a, an option. Um, I suffered a bad footballing accident, broke my jaw, and uh, missed all the enrolment for university. And it was either a question of having a year out, um, and all of a sudden uh, I stumbled, literally, mean stumbled across a course for conveyancing. So it was a CLC licensed conveyancing course, and uh, yeah, I decided yeah, property sounded good. I'd already done A level law, so I enjoyed the sort of contract side of things, and. Uh, with conveyancing, you know, people are always looking forward to doing something where with a lot of other areas of law, they've suffered a problem or got a grievance. So with criminal, matrimonial, litigation, something bad's normally happened. Mm. Whereas with conveyancing, it's one area of law where people are looking forward to something happening. So I kind of fell into it, is probably the answer. Mm, that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And yeah, when I think of all the other laws there's usually an issue. Yeah. There's not a positive thing. It's not, no. I'm buying a new house, I'm moving in. Exactly. I'm... That's really interesting. And then, yeah. did you find that as you got into conveyancing, did the course, did it did it still have that positivity? Was it still what you expected? Not necessarily from the course, but it was actually dealing with clients. Um, because I think one thing that our industry often takes for granted is that actually you are... Uh, pivotal to somebody's dream um, you know they're moving home they, they only move home on average six seven times in their lifetime and you're a big part of that process you're dealing with a very 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 complicated English legal system that's very archaic needs reform which I think everybody would agree um, and we have to work within those strict parameters and you know hold somebody's hand getting them from uh, you know putting an offer in to complete and then been able to move into that dream home. So you're a big part of that process and it's people's feedback and gratitude and uh, you know, joy that probably gives you the biggest kick. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, 
it is a positive position and mm. you are having such a positive impact, but at least from a property developer's perspective, the perception of solicitors is not positive. No. Generally speaking, it's it's not as bad as, say, builders. It mm. definitely isn't. It's, it's <laughs> miles away from that, so I'll give you that. What about estate agents? Uh, <laughs> it's, oh, you know what? I on think on, on par. I think, so. on par. I, think, yeah. I think agents have less power, which is why, okay. you know, we kind of can let them go and not feel yeah. too much. But with yeah. solicitors, we're like, we haven't got a choice. Yeah, we need I, th- you. I think um, one of the issues with lawyers and client perception of lawyers is the lack of knowledge that a lot of clients will have and and public perception. So I don't think as a profession we're very good at actually explaining what's happening and why something's happening. (laughs) So one of the biggest problems uh, within a conveyancing transaction, let's just say an average transaction, where you're acting for Joe Bloggs buying the house, they're also getting a mortgage. Well, we act for the bank as well as the client. But the bank have criteria that we have to abide by and we have to inform them if certain things crop up with this particular client, which is very borderline, so there'd been a bit of a conflict. So if the client tells you, I've just been made redundant, I should be telling the bank that the client's been made redundant, and all of a sudden, the bank might pull that mortgage off. Yeah. So you are kind of put in a position whereby it is a difficult one to manage somebody's expectations, and you know, you, you've got to conduct this conveyancing process within a certain way. Um, you've got to adhere by... Um, various rules that form what's called part of the Law Society's protocol. And of course you get a, a prefer of rules from the banks as well, what they will lend on, what they won't lend on, and some of it's applicable to the client and some of it's applicable to the property. So unfortunately you're often bearing bad news as, as well as the good. Yeah, I think most of the time it is, I call it advisory news, should we say, where it's yeah. I think maybe because I look at it as a business perspective. Yeah. You know, you always say, Ted, I wouldn't advise this, but you're a businessman, so mm-hmm. do what you want. But this is, I, you know, legally I wouldn't yeah. advise this. And I think it's important that when people are working with you, at least for business transactions, so not their own home, but it's also relevant there, that they have to kind of take a view on it and say, well, that's a solicitor's perspective. Let me yeah. get my broker's perspective. Let yeah. me get my insurance. Let me get, my, you know. Yeah. You all form a team, right? Yeah, 100%. So there is a big difference between acting uh, for a client that is uh, an investor as opposed to somebody that may be a bit wet behind the ears that's actually going to move into the property. Yeah. Totally different aspects. You know, One thing we do, we advise people. We don't make their decisions. So I might say to you, Ted, I wouldn't buy that property if it was me because there's no right of way over that area of land or because there's this restrictive covenant which is going to prevent you from you know, doing it up and putting that extension on it or whatever the case may be. Um, but of course, commercially, it may be that you take a view on that and you're going to try and work around those issues which may be successful, may not, but from a monetary point of view, of course, the deal's there, isn't it? So yeah. it's not our job to you know, make decisions. Our job is to advise you as to what's going to happen if you enter into this contract and agreement with a vendor and the implications of doing so. And I think that's what makes it harder for new developers or new people in business is because, and this is what makes, I think, our life difficult when we work with sellers. Because, for example, on the business we just you know worked on together to yeah. purchase, the seller sort of thought that the solicitor was God and whatever they said went. And I had to say to him, go online, read what solicitors do. They only advise you... Yeah. It's your choice. Now, look, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to them, right? Because there's implications, but that would that caused us easily two weeks of delays because he didn't know to say X, Y, and Z. And then eventually he said, yeah, hold on, I don't agree with you, solicitors. And then he said, I'm going to do what I want. And they said, fine, 
but we don't advise it. And, he, mm. and then he was sort of like, oh. And I think that lack of knowledge makes it difficult for you yeah, because you have to then explain extra. Yeah, right? I, I think one of the things we've always got to bear in mind, um, a lot of people think that the conveyancing process and the people involved are sort of, uh, you know, a connected community. That's not the case. You know, you are acting on behalf of your client, be that the seller or the buyer, and your job is to get the best outcome for your client. Yeah. Not the buyer, not the seller. Now, yeah. that might not be popular, okay? And going back to sort of expectations and what people think about lawyers, I think people in general will be very, very, very surprised how often we are told to do something which may look like we're potentially selling something down. So I'll give you an example. I had a client um, that's just completed uh, his purchase and only a month back he was you know, saying, for Christ's sake, you, know, you need to slow this down. Right, okay, you know, I need another a couple of deals to go through before I'm going to have the final balance. Um, I had another client that wanted to get the boiler serviced, you know, right on the brink of exchange. And of course, I will always say to a client, you know, if you want to do that and you're getting pressure from the agent, tell the agent, I've told you, you've yeah, got yeah. to do it, okay? I'm going to get it in the neck. Yeah. But if it means it's the best outcome from you, my retainer is with you. So yeah. therefore, that's what I'm doing. So yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It is. And I, I've, to be fair, I always want to complete quick. I don't think yeah. I've ever wanted to slow... I mean, I think with my own residential purchase, I might have said to you, I'm going to blame you to slow it down <laughs> because of the builders or something. But it makes sense because the agent will always say, oh, yeah, typical solicitors. That's, yeah. They won't. I mean, they might be pushy, but again, you can say, oh, I don't know, it's a solicitor. So I think it's a, that's a commercial thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's making that decision to slow things down or most investors, I think, want to speed things up in yeah. most cases. So, you know, if we go back to before we jump into conveyancing, because there's so much there. You did this course, I assume you then worked for a law firm? Yep, so I worked um, for one of the biggest law firms in Essex um, prior to opening up my practice. Um, I was there, I think, eight, nine years. Okay. Uh, worked my way up from a trainee, in fact, more like an office junior, uh, to becoming a trainee, becoming qualified, having my own caseload, nice. uh, and then scaling that to uh, being one of the biggest sort of fee earners in that practice. Wow. So it was only natural from there, having these sort of monthly meetings with the uh, accountant and seeing what you're billing yeah, and seeing what yeah. you're doing is a natural sort of transition that you thought, well, actually, I could do this on my own. Uh, and also the landscape was very much changing um, when I was sort of looking to open up, which was in 2006. The landscape was changing a lot. You know, estate agents all of a sudden wanted referral fees. You know, it wasn't a case of taking somebody out to lunch um, or buying them an Easter egg. Um, which is what one of the senior partners always tell me, just go and buy them an Easter egg, they'll be fine. Uh, no, actually, they want 100 quid. Uh, so, you know, the landscape was changing a lot. Things were becoming a lot more commercial and sort of law firms giving service was starting to creep in. And for me, I could say that, or I could see that this was going to be a big changing point within the profession. I think um, historically, law firms have maybe sat there and thought, well, I'm a law firm, come to me with the business. Yep. Um, you know, marketing, things like that didn't exist. Um, and also as well, you know, historically, law firms are very much for that traditional firm on the high street that people would come Fax to. Fax machines, typewriters. Yeah, yeah, would come to for a variance of different things, whereas now, of course, with the online and, you know, the whole world was changing then. And of course, yeah, that, that came to fruition and, and everything has changed, doesn't it? yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And how old were you when you started your you started PCS? Twenty six, I think. I think at the time when I started, I was the youngest um, CLC four license holder. 
Wow. Um, that's probably changed now, isn't it? It's probably uh, a little bit of snap. Yeah. <laughs> long since I would say. Maybe about the time I was anyway, yeah. And starting your own law firm, mm-hmm. you know, was it tough? Lots of red tape or was it fairly straightforward back? The red tape. Uh, and, and that was then, now, mm-hmm. even worse. I can't even imagine. Even worse. Um, number one, you've got a, you know, huge issues with your regulatory body that you have to overcome to demonstrate sort of, you know, business structure plans and continuity plans. Um, you know, you have to be very mindful that you're handling millions of pounds worth of client money and the protection of that. Uh, right through to dealing with banks, you know, we, we discussed earlier about, you know, acting on behalf of a, a client's lender. We have to go on the, pan, uh, the uh, panel of every single bank. There's a hell of a lot to do if you want to open up a law firm to deal with uh, conveyancing for sure. Is it, you know how, you know, some people used to think that, oh, you know, if I become a doctor, I'll be really rich. <laughs> and then you looked at the hourly rate and what, yeah. how the NHS treat you and how the world is and you're like, that's really not the smartest, easiest way to get rich. Yeah. Given all of the red tape and everything yeah. you've experienced and how yeah. successful it is now, would you say starting a law firm is a way for people to make a lot of wealth efficiently, smoothly? Mm. I was probably one of those people that looked at those figures and thought, wow, uh, if I can build this on my own, um, I could make stack loads of money. But no, um, you know, the overheads that go behind that are incredible. And, you know, I would have said that a law firm making sort of 10% profit on their overall fee would be doing very well. Wow. Uh, Yeah, levels of insurance that you have to have in place uh, to even conduct a conveyancing matter. Uh, on its own of extreme so you know 10-15% you'd be doing very well so there's not as much probably money in it as, wow. as people may think it's not that headline yeah. uh, figure that you're taking home how much do you think you spend on insurance a month give me a ballpark um, we as a practice we probably spend around £30,000 a month um, just on indemnity insurance alone wow That's and obviously stuff. you can't do anything without that no. and if you think about the logic um, and Maybe the viewers are going to throw loads of examples back at me now, but I can't think of too many other professions and industries where you actually fund something from the start to the finish without even taking a deposit. So if you think about the logic, if something takes three months to go through, okay, we fund that buyer's work for the whole of that three-month process, and we get paid on completion. may fall through halfway through, of course, as well. Um, But we fund that whole process from insurance to secretaries working on the file to, you know, dealing with the land registry, the revenue, everything. We fund the whole lot. You know, our industry does not take a deposit up front uh, or anything like that. So, no idea. (laughs) Absolutely no idea. I've always thought this, but of course, you know, Nobody, no other law firm ever does. So they take you know, search money, but I suppose that goes you, straight to the. You take search yeah, yeah. monies, um, and you might take a minimal amount on a sale to order, you know, planning commissions. And yeah, literally a couple of quid. Yeah, yeah. Couple of quid. Um, but that is a disbursement that you're paying out very quick after you've received yeah, it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, you're not taking any money on uh, up top, so to speak. So it's a difficult one. Yeah, you're funding a lot up front. So in terms of finances of a law firm, there's a lot of. I suppose debt at any one time that yes. you're waiting on coming in. Most definitely. Most definitely. And so, you know, you started the law firm then. Mm-hmm. Now, how many years has it been going? So we are 17 in October. Wow. And how many staff in the company? We've got just under 170 employees across oh, six different offices. 170 now. humans. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how you deal with it. And what's your sort of turnover like every year? So we turn over just under 8 million. 
Amazing. Um, so, yeah. It's, and uh, it's a big entity. I mean, the number of staff alone is... How... I suppose... Why? Why are you this size? You know, do you need to be this size to operate effectively? Uh, I would be lying if I said I had some uh, strategy or some business plan that said it was going to grow to this kind of level. Um, but with PCS, we're actually, uh, we originate from a, simply a, a family-run law firm. It was myself that opened up the practice in October 2006. It was literally me in an office, smaller than this room we're in now, uh, on my own. Uh, for the first month and my assistant that worked with me at my previous firm came to work with me she's still ironically at the practice now me uh, yeah um, so you know over the years we organically grew uh, I love using that word because it kind of <laughs> describes exactly what we are we added one person you know after another after another we've never had any financial investment um, so we have grown kind of you know m on a month by month basis um, and yeah, there was never particularly a, a desire to be big or anything like that. Um, it kind of grew organically through what I believe at the time was good service um, and trying to have empathy with the client that a lot of law firms at that time were not doing and, and hadn't identified. Um, we were very lucky, I think, that we opened up prior to the recession, sort of in 2007, 2008. Mm. So we're not growing big for that to be a particularly a problem um, and of course during that period 2009 2010 lots of law firms are making mass redundancies where we were actually picking the best people going shopping um, yeah so it actually i didn't think so at the time obviously uh, but it actually worked out very well um, and gave us a good sort of kick start in terms of growth and moving on from there and how many cases do you think you handle a month I would say in terms of total cases, around about 2,000 a month. In terms of conveyancing cases, probably around the 1,000 to, to, to maybe 1,200 we would complete on. Do our odds and sods like wills and uh, change of name deeds and independent legal advice and dealer guarantees and all sorts of mm. other little bits and bobs, tenancy agreements. But in terms of actually conveyancing cases, yeah. around about 1,200, something like that a month. And where does that place you in the UK law firm scene? Uh, How big or small is that? What, so we're a firm of uh, licensed conveyances, so we specialise in property law. Uh, in terms of licensed conveyances, we'd be about the fifth, sixth biggest based wow. on land registry uh, applications. Uh, well, that was sort of the last year uh, stats. Is that big? Yeah, it's quite big, yeah. Do you want to get to number one? No. No, I said no. Number one does tens of thousands a month. Uh, the difference between, say, us and number one is enormous. Um, wow. For me, no, I've got no desire to go anywhere near that level. My desire is more to try and, you know, give that good service. Can I be a factory? Really? That's a conveyor belt of yeah, yeah, literally yeah. tick, tick, tick. Yeah, I don't want to put down any other firms, but there is an element of that. There has uh, to be. For sure, there in, has in to be. To work. And look, you know, those directors are probably sitting there with the Ferraris out the front <laughs> doing very well. So. Where, where's yours? Around the back? <laughs> yeah, around the back. <laughs> you borrowed it last week, didn't you? But no, literally, um, you know, I'm not sort of knocking any firm for, for what they might want to achieve. But for me, um, the landscape is changing so much in conveyancing. You know, conveyancing used to be simply transferring the title from a seller to a buyer. But people, they want to know about the title. They want to know about the fixtures and fittings. They want to know about the keys oh, when they get them. Stuff. You know, yeah, they want to know much more about the practical side of it. So it's becoming more and more of a moving process than, ah. than simply conveyancing. 
So, you know, what you can offer a client now is so much more diverse and, you know, with apps and trackers yeah. and all sorts of stuff that's going on. Did you have an app and an online system? Yeah, to... we've got all that kind of thing. I'm not even sure it's a USP anymore, is it? You know, it should, everyone should have that kind of thing. They should, yeah. yeah. Do people yeah. use it? Do you, do you use it on your end and your um, customers? Ironically, yeah, um, 50-50. Some people, I, I think that's really what we would like to say, we cater for everybody. Yeah. So there are people that actually still want us to send a load of forms in the post and we'll return them via the post. You know, we receive IDs still sometimes in the post. Um, oh, we also have obviously, you know, apps that people, links that people can click yeah, on, do facial so recognition and videos and stuff like that. So we cater for anybody that could be remote to somebody that could be around the corner that wants to drop stuff in. Uh, we deal with work from state agents, brokers, developers, housing associations, investors. So we do every different type of conveyancing and land law that there is. And of course, with that brings multiple types of clients, which again means multiple processes. And that, that's where it becomes difficult. You know, multiple yeah. processes and juggling those different balls, spinning those plates. Especially if one, one conveyancer has to sort of communicate with me a certain way, them a certain way, they a certain way, different. I think like yeah. there's... I can see how solicitors and conveyances can get overwhelmed because yeah. there is so much to do. And it's not like you reviewing a document is a one-page contract. It's like 10 pages written in Shakespearean English yeah. that just doesn't make sense to most people. And I think, you know, do you, do you get overwhelmed? Uh, yeah, I think everybody does. I think people will be lying if they didn't get overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, there are times when you are so busy, you know, you don't know where to turn. Um, and you've just got to power on through it sometimes, haven't you? But, you know... Dealing with clients, dealing with people, um, you know, it's 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 not a nine to five job anymore. Um, yeah. You know, you have to be on call a lot, lot more than that. I mean, we, we speak at like nine pm. Yeah, so I mean, we're, we're, the office is open to eight pm every oh, night. Oh, um, And it's not, you know, we originally thought we're a great USP, open later in the day. You know, not everybody else does that, but it actually helps us just as much uh, because the the one problem we have is that you know the phone is always ringing, but we do have to spend time looking at documents yeah and sometimes you may need to strike an hour even two hours out of the day um to look at complicated stuff um if that's the case you know sometimes there are not enough hours in the day so having that flexibility is is definitely important and one thing that i find really interesting about you and i tell everyone this is that i have a mobile phone number i don't give it out people ask me i say you're not getting this shit this is exclusive <laughs> this is a list only and i'm like you own this firm, there's 171 yep. people you said, you're turning over 8 million, you're doing 2,000 cases a month, you are the, the MD, should we say, the senior yep. partner, whatever you want to call it, you're the boss boss, but yet I can still talk to you. I know that when I introduce people to you, generally, you know, you're emailing, yep. like sort of on email and on the phone, and you're running the business, and I know you're doing like commercial things, and we did a business acquisition, so I know you yep. sort of do that, and then you're doing, and like, I just don't understand how most solicitors can't balance four cases, you know, a month. You can't get a response back, but you manage a business and workload. Well, cases. first of all, I've got a very good team behind me. Mm -hmm. So I've got an excellent manager in our accounting department. I've got an excellent manager uh, who looks after the office, does all the managerial side of that. I've got my sister and my brother who are also partners. Uh, there's Keely, Sarah, Eamon, more partners at the practice that also manage vast areas of it. So it's not just me, first mm -hmm. of all. Um, second, we kind of said off air, I'm a massive believer in actually having your sort of, you know, hand in the business 
actually understanding what everybody does. Yeah. You know, I work my way up in terms of conveyancing from the bottom. So literally, I've done every part of a transaction from the office junior's role to, um, you know, a secretarial role to an assistance role to a fee earning role. So I've done it all. So I know exactly how it works. And when, and I have taken periods of time where I have really stepped back from a caseload, but I've always found that be very detrimental. Um, I've personally, and I know it may not be a popular business strategy, so to speak, but I've always personally found having uh, a caseload, albeit more limited than the average person, yeah. um, is very advantageous. You know, I think people start respect to you if you do the same job that they do. Yeah. And I think knowing what they do is very important because you know how much pressure you can apply, what targets you can give. Uh, you know, I came yeah, from yeah. a firm that I was given targets that were totally unrealistic. So it was put there's a pointless exercise having those meetings, but I'd like to think that, you know, I know that if I give somebody a target that it's reasonable to expect them to be able to meet that. Um, and of course, you know, the, the law changes every five minutes, processes changes every five minutes, um, you know, people change. So, yeah. you know, having your hand in there, knowing what's going on means, you know, in terms of staff and managing them, it's a lot easier. And it, do you enjoy casework? Yeah, I do, because that's originally what that's I what you set did, out yeah. to do. You know, I never thought when I was sort of 18, 19 that I would run a law firm. You know, I thought that I might go into conveyancing. Um, and, you know, actually dealing with people, taking away the stress and actually getting them from A to B, getting them over the line, the biggest thing they're ever probably going to buy, yeah. only ever going to do it maybe six, seven times in their life, you know, is, is something that I think we all take for granted a bit. Absolutely. Now, we've used the word conveyancing quite a bit. Now, yeah. most people watching, listening to this, they're going to know what it means. But what is the single line Google definition of conveyancing? So it would be transferring the title to a property or area of land from a seller to a buyer. And you need two legal professionals to do this? Um, yes, practically you do. Uh, not necessarily. Can you handle uh, you yourself? Can be, you? you can do it yourself. You can be unrepresented. Um, that in this day and age would be a nightmare. It would be very difficult. Especially with me, because I'd be emailing all the time if you were the other side. Yeah, because I might as well just do it for you. Yeah. Um, so it would be very difficult. But yeah, ultimately, a seller and a buyer both have separate representation. Somebody looking after them, looking after their interests uh, in terms of the commercial industry that they're dealing with. Now, you're saying separate there. Now, I yeah. learned through you sort of maybe a year or two ago that actually they don't have to necessarily be separate Law firms, no. you can dual represent, shall we say, yep. the seller and a buyer. Yeah, so a firm can dual represent, but an individual lawyer would act separately. So, for example, if I was acting for you buying a property, it would be a separate lawyer within our firm yeah. that would act for that vendor. Uh, there is a fine line between what's called a conflict of interest. That's obviously what you, you, know, you have to avoid. Um, you have to make sure that everything's impartial and you're both representing the client fairly. Um, there, are, there is separate regulation behind CLC and solicitors. Yeah. I don't think solicitors um, are liberal with, yeah. with, with dual representation. They have more of an issue with it. Uh, and uh, the rule and regulation state that they can't so much. But in terms of CLC, licensed conveyances, we can act on both sides of the transaction. And I suppose that makes it a lot easier because instead of you chasing some idiot with a typewriter, you know that the person is competent. Yes, it is easier uh, because, of course, uh, if I'm expecting to receive documents from somebody within my practice, 
I know the format of those documents. I know what's in our contracts. So I kind of half know what's coming to a degree. So yeah. I'm going to obviously approve my own contract. <laughs> um, so that does make it a lot easier. Uh, in terms of communication, again, it's a lot easier. I know where everybody is. I know if somebody's not in. I know who to contact if somebody's going to be covering somebody. So that makes it a hell of a lot easier. Are you allowed to talk in person? Oh, yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, but always got to go back to the fact that you are looking after your client. your client. So, you know, it may well be that somebody on the other side to me has been told to slow something up or they've not got in. And also, it might not be a, a purposeful thing. It may be that somebody is slow. Mm. You know, as a, as a lawyer acting for somebody, you can only go so quick if that client hasn't given you what you've asked for. Mm-hmm. And also now, we're in an age where with ID, money laundering, linking documents when you're selling, there's so much somebody has to do at the onset. You know, they've, they've got their broker maybe throwing sort of requests at them for bank statements, for this, for that, wage slips, you know, blah, 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 blah. Then we come on the scene, ask for everything again, um, all that jazz. You know, it's a lot of um, intense information requests that a client would receive. Yeah. So actually, quite often, the client can be the person that delays things. And I suppose if you're not an investor, you haven't got all your documents ready in the Google Drive, you don't know what you're expecting, you're like, whoa, there's all this stuff. Very much. Find it in. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And, you know, with convincing, I've heard, and maybe we've discussed this, people say, you know, compared to other areas of law, it can be a sort of checkbox exercise where you've got a list of things you need to take off on the title to investigate, and that's kind of it. I say that very, I say, is that what convincing is like practically? Not at all. No, no, not at all. Completely. I think every business and, and whatever we do in life, do we not have tick boxes yeah, and check boxes? Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there is certain elements of conveyancing where there are standardised forms, shall we say, yeah. that is very tick box orientated. But you know, you are investigating that client in terms of ID and AML, and you are investigating that property that they are buying. You need to do certain amounts of due diligence. You need to understand why your client's buying it, what they're going to do with it to then investigate it. You know, if, if a client says to you, well, I'm going to be buying this property because I can put a two-story extension on the back of it, I can't afford a five-bedroom house, but I can afford a four-bedroom house and put a two-story extension on. Well, if you then look at that title and there's a drain out the back or there's a covenant not to extend, um, it might not be suitable for them. So you've really got to, you know, investigate yeah. what's happening and, and really look at the bigger picture. Yeah, and because when I buy property, you always say to me, what's your plan with it? Yeah. Anything, what's your plan with it? Yeah. And generally, it's pretty standard with me, but like that makes sense because you're then investigating 100%. if I can do my, yeah. my plan with it. Yeah, 100%. That's pivotal. If you don't know what your client's going to do, how can you represent them properly? Now, that initial fact find, and there's a lot of information that people have to give at the start, but it is crucial to moving forward, and there's a vast difference between a first-time buyer and somebody that's done it several times. So sort of managing their expectations, knowing what they want to do. Um, you know, there are properties that aren't suitable to be flipped. There are properties that yeah. aren't suitable to do, to be developed, even if they're currently run down, for example. So, yeah, yeah. you know, properties in auction, um, you know, generally they're in there for two reasons. The seller wants to move it really quickly or there's a big problem with it. It can't be sold on the open market. Um, so investigating it is absolutely, you know, the, the, the fundamental thing that you do. So... I'm the seller, you're yep. the, I'm the seller solicitor, yep. you're the buyer solicitor, yep. I'm your worst nightmare, of course. Um, <laughs> let, generally, or just in yeah. this situation? <laughs> Probably a bit of both. <laughs> so in this situation, because I want people to understand this process yep. of that when they work with you, when they yep. work with solicitors, 
when they understand it, they can sort of, I suppose, ease off or kind of just know that you're doing what you should be doing, right? Because yeah. as you said, I think sisters don't explain it very well. We think, what the bloody hell is he doing? You know, yeah. I, you know. So agents have sent us the memos. Yeah. I'm the seller solicitor. Um, it's my, who, who does the first step? Who makes the first move? Right, okay, so there's no particular answer to that one. Okay, okay. so what should happen is, as a seller, you should be communicating with me to say that I'm instructing to act on behalf of Joe Blog selling this property. Yep. You know, can you confirm you're the person dealing? I should be then contacting you to say I'm acting on behalf of Fred Smith. Okay, um, you know, can you send me all the documents on the property, for example? And I send the property information form. Yeah, your job is then is to start drafting the documents, drafting the contracts, downloading titles. Drafting just means writing, doesn't it? In essence, yeah. yeah. Um, but again. Not necessarily, because when we talk about this tick box, you might say to me, well, actually, I'm selling this, but um, there's a big area of land on the side of the property, and that buyer reckons they might build another house there. So can you actually just put an overage in there to say that, you know, if they do get planning, I get an extra 10% of the resale value or something like that? Well, all that's going to be written into those contracts, yes. written into the transfers. You know, if you're, uh, you might be only selling part of a property, there could be another bit that you're gonna retain. So people will often retain parking spaces, for example, if they're in the local area. So you might have to draft what's called a TP1, a transfer part. Um, there's all sorts. Again, if you're gonna maybe reside in a neighboring property, you might want covenants uh, to be put on the title saying that you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, and this is the seller's lawyer who has to do all yeah, this. Yeah, so the seller's lawyer would need to draft all that. And that's why the seller's lawyer does need to have that conversation with their client. What are you doing here? Mm. Um, and then, yeah, you fling all that gum to me. Again, it's my job to go through everything with a fine tooth comb to make sure that this is going to be okay. A, for my client, who's the person buying it, going to move into it or invest, flip, whatever. Uh, and B, that the mortgage company is going to be able to secure their charge against the title to this property. And then you send the, the uh, infamous or famous um, inquiries. Yeah. Because we're always waiting for replies to inquiries. Yeah. This is just the bane of my life and bane yeah. of all problems. <laughs> you send the inquiries over, which some of them are generic, right? You know, like, so, yeah. So you, inquiries are simply questions that you're yeah. asking. So you might think that something's not quite right. So you're going to raise this inquiry. Mm. Okay? You'd also do what's called searches. Okay. Now, yeah. there are numerous searches that are so many different sort of circumstances in different properties and also different geographical areas. But in the main, there's a local drainage environmental searches. So an, an environmental will tell you about things, obviously on the environmental basis, such as uh, land contamination, flooding, things like that. It is uh, an electronic search, it's not a survey, somebody's not gonna go down there, but it'll tell you about the, the area in general. Uh, and also the key thing about these searches are that if you're getting a mortgage, the banks will insist on these being done. So even if you didn't yep. want them. Uh, a drainage search will tell you about uh, whether the property's connected to the water supply, sewerage, location of drains, whether you've got to contribute money towards public drains, stuff like that. And so again, the example of somebody buying with the, the two-story extension out the back, if the drainage search comes back and it shows that drain right by the back door, uh, maybe they won't be able to do that. Uh, and then the local search, which is really important because that will tell you anything that is registered at the local authority. So there might be a grant, okay, maybe it was an elderly couple that owned this property and they got a grant from the local authority to have new windows put in or a stair lift. Yeah. That could still be repayable, as well as telling you about sort of plan applications, building regulation consents, tree preservation orders, smoke control orders, private roads, anything basically related to the local authority 
will be in that search. So you're going to get sort of some of these questions answered anyway by these searches, but there'll always be bits and bobs. You know, there'll always be things such as maybe a boiler's been replaced. You might want to see a certificate. Uh, again, you've got different clients here because if it's a client with a bank, they might want to see that. I might say to you, Ted, are you bothered about this? And you might say, I'm going to rip it all out anyway, so I'm not bothered. So again, you've got to evaluate who you're dealing with, mm. what your clients want and what they're going to do to see whether it's necessary to raise that inquiry. Um, there is, and I think the perception that you're alluding to, you know, some of these inquiries, are they all rubbish? A lot of them can be, yeah. um, because I think there is a tendency for people just just fling out a standardised set, yeah. for want of a word, without actually evaluating what they're doing. But also some of them will be important. You know, there are, uh, maybe from an investor's point of view, Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how many of the listeners or viewers will actually know about this, but if they've secured the property... Uh, for a really good price, there could be what we call an undervalue. Yeah. Well, actually, if that seller within seven years was then to go bust, a trustee in bankruptcy could actually look to overturn that transaction because if you think about it, I'm about to go bust, well, I'm just going to transfer my property for a lower value to you anyway. There's a balance on this. You need to look at you know the value of the property. Is it worth more? Is there an undervalue? Do I need to insure the undervalue for my clients to make sure they're protected? Um, so there are lots of things actually yeah, yeah, yeah. that, you know, you'll look at the title to a property, covenants, rights of way, you know, when was it originally purchased, restrictions, notices, charges. You know, I want to know, for example, if there's a mortgage on the property, I want a legally binding undertaking that's going to be repaid on completion. Yes. So it's all a bit boring, you know, I'm going to admit, but you know, ultimately they're there to protect your client. And anything that you ask, once an answer is given, is what's called represented. Uh, and this is why it all goes between lawyers. It's represented. Yeah. And that means if the seller was to tell a poor pie, you have a, a claim against them for what's called misrepresentation. You can sue them, claim damages uh, if you suffer a loss. But anything they say directly to you or via the estate agent is basically bollocks. Correct. Yep. Can't rely on it. And you've told, you told and me that this. is within the contract. And you told me this early on, because yeah. even with the business purchase, the seller was selling me stuff, but I kept telling him, yeah. fine, yeah. but your solicitor needs to send them He's like, why? I was like, representation, yeah. Google yeah. it. Yeah. Like, it's, it, I suppose in property, you rarely speak to the seller anyway. In most, it, like, it varies, I find it, it yeah. Yeah, like, it totally varies in different circumstances. But yeah, sometimes there'll be a relationship, especially if you've done personal viewings. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, if somebody says, I'm going to leave, you know, £2,000 in the kitchen drawer, you move in, it's not there. Unfortunately, not a lot you can do about that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. No brown envelope. So, um, so we're at this stage, you've sent the inquiries, I've sent you the replies, we've gone back and forth. We're, we're basically both happy with everything. Yeah. Usually then you sort of deal with the bank, yep. do their stuff, but you know, at this stage we're pretty much ready to exchange and complete. Yep. Now, exchange and completion, I don't know, there all seems to be a bit of a, a, a mist or fog around. Let's take one little step back, okay? One thing that is often a problem is when we try and simplify conveyancing, we're trying to put it in its own little box. Mm. And this is where it sometimes becomes a bit of a, a contradiction perhaps when we're telling clients what's happening. So. Have you raised inquiries? Yes, I have. Have you got answers to those inquiries? Yes, the seller's always answered them all. But maybe a search will come back saying, oh, there's a private road. Oh, actually, I've got to raise a few more questions about that. Some more inquiries. Maybe a, a bank's mortgage offer will come to me and it will say, well, that lease, uh, we're not happy to lend it. We want a variation. We want the lease extended. Oh, God, I've got to do some more work now. I've got to raise more inquiries. 
So it's not a static, it is a moving, you know, a move, spinning plate, whatever you want to call it. It's not static. You know, inquiries can be finalised and answered, and then more, unfortunately, can crop up. Depending on searches coming back, mortgage offers coming in, client might have a survey. The survey might reveal information about the property that even the seller wasn't aware of. Again, that would prompt mm. you to have to raise inquiries. It's a dynamic sort of yeah. back and forth, unfortunately, which takes time because yeah. you have to review things, they have to review stuff, they have yeah. to... You can, on um, a more complex, especially <clears throat> like with a leasehold property, you can have, uh, I think it's 19 once we counted, 19 different parties all popping their two pennies into a transaction. So you could have an estate agent, a buyer, a seller, a buyer's lawyer, a seller's lawyer, a landlord, a management company, a search company, the three different variants of that, a mortgage company, a residence association. It can, it can go on and on and on. There's this so is many, my nightmare. Yeah, management companies. There are so many people that can be involved. And don't forget, that's on one single seller and buyer one property. Put this in a chain where there are lots of people selling them buying, selling them buying. You can have lots of people. And it only takes one, of course, to delay and then everybody's delayed and no one's on your schedule everyone's on their own schedule so this they'll the last minute you know this is the difficulty you can even find a chain is agreed at different points in terms of sale so you might be sitting there agreed this purchase you're flying but the top of the chain's not even sold yet and this is why you've got to value it when people say why does it take so long biggest most common question we get asked all the time why does it take so long and it's because there are so many people that are putting information into this transaction or chain that, yeah, one person delays and everybody's delayed. Ridiculous. What is the average time of conveyancing in the UK? What do you state? We would say three months, okay, as an average. Oh I know that's going to bring out a cold sweat. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we would say three months. And during COVID, you're probably talking maybe four to five months. Um, and that's average. But you do things in a couple of days sometimes? Can you, can yes, you yeah, yeah. On, on the flip side, okay, if people don't have mortgages, um, you know, and you say, right, okay, I've got all the information here, bang, I'll look at it, can you sign a contract, can you give me a deposit, you know, have you got all the money ready? Some people are available, bang, 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 yeah, yeah. okay, but obviously it's more limited clients that are in that position. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, it can be done that quick. And then... We did it one day. Can be done the same day. As long as the other side sisters play ball, right? Because... Yeah, everybody needs to play Every seller, buyer, <laughs> needs to everybody be needs to be available. I mean, in this day and age, how often are people available to drop everything? Not very often. No. So, every, but, but yeah, you can do it all in the same day, would you believe? What's the longest convincing you've ever... Years. Go on for years and years. Because it was so complex or because everyone was a bit uh, silly? No, normally there are circumstances behind it. So there are different types of conveyancing transactions. So you can buy, for example, off plan, off developers. You might find that you um, buy, you exchange contracts within three weeks, but it might take the developer another two years to build before you complete. So that can go on for years. But equally, there could be a fundamental problem with the property that you're buying um, that means that it's going to take that amount of time to... Um, that, there's all kinds of reasons. You know, um, we had one not that long ago where somebody had the benefit of a covenant. Uh, we wanted the covenant removed. But the actual person was in the process of, I think it was treatment for some variant of cancer. Um, so you can get really personal reasons yeah, yeah, as to yeah. why things can rumble on and on and on. But it's, again, it's the buyer's decision whether they want to stick with that yeah. or not. Because the fundamental part of any convincing transaction is that you put your offer in, you're not bound by it until you exchange contracts. Yeah, which is so painful. Yeah. And so uncertain. 
yeah. for everyone involved. In Scotland, it's different, right? I think if you offer, you can't get Gazumdo. There's some it different. It is and it isn't. <laughs> okay, so in Scotland, you put your offer in, you're legally bound by it. Mm-hmm. However, uh, in England, we, in Wales, we put our offer in and we're not bound by it. But of course, in Scotland, you've done your due diligence before you put your offer in. So you're kind of taking the process here. Yeah, yeah. It's got the market just moving it like that, which means you're a little bit there, it's closer. But but ultimately, yeah, yeah you've done a lot of your judgments before you get to the point of putting your offer in. And, and things may change. There's a lot of movement at the moment regarding property logbooks, yeah. um, upfront information, you know, where maybe vendors um, will have to collate information so that a buyer's more informed. Um, it should be like a car know. service book. Yeah, it's very that. It wasn't that long ago we had something called HIPS, the Labour government bought in yes. home information yeah, packs, yeah, yeah. where it was a seller that had to do the searches before they put the property on the market. Well, I'm down for that. Okay, so yeah, so the seller would actually produce this pack so that when a buyer was uh, able to put their offer in, they could see the pack, they could go through the pack. Like an auction, a legal pack. Very much like an auction. Um, and yeah I'm, I'm assuming at some point when the government have appetite uh, to change the system uh, how long that will be God knows but yeah they've probably got a lot on there playing with the remnants of Covid and bad um, maybe decisions uh, <laughs> regarding budgets and things like that but um, yeah you know at some point I'm assuming you know it's going to become mandatory unfortunately until it becomes mandatory you won't see that change there's a lot of movement trying to promote the change um, we in the office do upfront stuff you know we do what's called a fast move service so we yeah. try and promote the vendor completing and compiling the information when they put the property on the market not when they've sold we try and promote a buyer coming to us straight away so we can you know, do their ID their AML checks get a mortgage offer agreed in principle so that when the client goes to view the property they're what we call legally ready mm-hmm. so if a vendor's got five offers and all around the same price. You might be tempted to go with one that's legally ready. That's I would. The others. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we try and promote that. But I think until it becomes mandatory, you're not going to see a great deal of change on the, the time element, I'm afraid. I think, yeah, I think properties need like a property passport, maybe on the blockchain. Yeah. So it can't be, you know, There's a lot of movement etc. A yeah. lot of movement for this. I suppose, I mean, you have such a antiquated dinosaur system that to pick it up and make it digital is like, I can just I can't even imagine yeah. everything that's going to go wrong, and the and the issue, like it, it needs to happen. Yeah, but it's it's like the biggest band aid ever. Like it's yeah. painful. <laughs> um, so go back to that process then. Yeah, we've done our bit back and yeah. forth. Yeah, uh, we're ready to exchange. Yes. Now exchange and completion, like I said, it seemed you know at least before I understood it from you was just this like ooh what are these listers doing? <laughs> what is exchange? So I, I'm ready. You're ready. What do yeah. we do? So basically. Uh, as a seller's lawyer, you've done all your drafting, you've done everything that a buyer's lawyer has asked you to do. And as a buyer's lawyer, you're, you, you've got to the point where you're happy with absolutely everything. Okay, so think, great, I'm happy with this. I've got clients client sign contract, I've got the client's deposit. Okay, so I'm gonna exchange. I'm gonna commit that buyer to buying the property. I'm gonna make the contract legally binding. Mm-hmm. Because previous to that, even though a seller and a buyer probably signed the contracts, they sign it in preparation for exchange. When you exchange, it is simply, would you believe, a 10, 15 minute phone call between a buyer's and a seller's lawyer, okay, where you go through the contracts and you agree various formulas and bits and bobs like that, which are implied undertakings. An undertaking is a legally binding promise. So when you commit to something, the lawyers then have to do things within certain times, etc. Uh, and yeah, when you put that phone down, you mark the contract up, 
both parties are legally bound. You've exchanged. And you send money on the phone? Like you send it whilst you're on the phone? No, no, because that's the implied undertaking. So the undertaking is when I put the phone down after we've had this conversation, one thing I'm going to do is send you the 10% deposit by bank transfer or however you've agreed it. One thing I'm going to do is I'm going to send this contract to you as well. So you've got my, con- my client's contract and I've got yours. So the formulas are undertakings that rather than actually you know, schedule them out in the contract, right, you know, I hereby undertake to do this, I undertake to do that, use a formula called A, B or C, um, and that sort of schedules it out for you. I always find it weird it's on the phone, because yep. you love things in writing and you love things being like <laughs> provable, so I assume the phone call's recorded and no one ever sort of lies, because it's... Um, there wouldn't be anything you lie about particularly, because um, you know, the, the parameters of the... Um, Agreement have, have, already been, have already been agreed. Okay, yeah. so the, the details of the, the agreement are already there. Okay, we've already approved the contract before. Okay, when you do your inquiries, you've got a copy of it. We say, yeah, that's good. Okay, um, both clients have agreed the completion day. The price is already agreed. Um, one of the things at that point that is quite important that, that does need to be agreed is the completion date. So yeah. it might be you know a week later, two weeks later, for example, which is probably most common now. Uh, when you've agreed. All of those details you exchange put up that gets inputted into that contract. You know, there's not a lot that's not been agreed by the time you come to exchange. Fine, so it's kind of a formality. Yeah. And then does because there's a transfer of money a consideration, yep. that then makes the contract in force. Whereas before that there wasn't, so correct. it's not in force. Yes, correct. Then does that apply to all contracts? That there needs in to be a consider in the world. Yes. So any contract that you sign with someone, yep. Until there is a consideration, a transfer of money, it could be a pound. Yeah, exactly correct. That's why a lot of agreements you will see consideration at a pound. Yeah. Then does that mean that? But that doesn't mean that. Con- that Depends what the contract's for. Yeah, because yeah. I'm thinking a contract between me and you know someone to supply me water every no, month. No, no. If you're buying a product, okay, then there'll be consideration in that contract. Yeah. In the, fine. Okay, that makes sense. And so we've exchanged. Yep. We're completing the next uh, many days and yep. and that has to be set at completion. Yeah, so again, you know, when you're advising your client, one of the things in the contract will be uh, permutations around the completion date. So most people that are just dealing with a residential uh, sale or purchase that are moving in and out, okay, they'll have what we call a fixed completion date. Mm-hmm. They've agreed in advance that they're going to complete on Friday the 13th, for example. Not many people do, but they've agreed that they're going to complete on Friday the 13th. So you know, you've made them legally bound to pay that price on that date. Uh, and then you'll do all your prepping before the 13th in terms of getting the balance of the client's money in, your mortgage advancing, you'll do more searches against the title. Because if this has been a three, four month process, you looked at the title when it was first downloaded and the sellers first prepared it all that time ago. Mm. So you wanna make sure that it's not changed, number one. And number two, really importantly, you're gonna freeze it. You're gonna get what's called priority over it. And that means only you can change it. Because at this point, the seller is the owner of the property. They could go and put another mortgage on there that you don't know about. Of course. So you freeze the title, get what's called priority. Uh, there are, uh, there's a, for example, if you're getting a mortgage, you have to do what's called a bankruptcy search. Mm-hmm. Because again, when the client applied for the mortgage, that could have been two or three months ago, their financial position could have changed over that period. Mm-hmm. So we do a bankruptcy search to make sure nothing's happened. Um, we also do all our preparation in terms of financial statements uh, and in terms of documents, there's what's called a transfer. That is a document which the land registry use to change the ownership. So that is um, already prepared. Uh, that'll be executed sometimes in between exchange and completion if it wasn't done before. And then on the day, it's a, a money swapping process.
And that's it, job done. That's it. You can also get contracts where completion is not fixed. Okay. So it could be on notice, which means it's, it's a bit open to when it's going to take oh, place. And okay. then there's permutations on how that notice is served. Uh, or there could be criteria similar to the, the transaction we recently did with your good self, where certain things have to happen before yes. completion can then take place. Um, uh, and with that, you, you tend to have what's called a long stop date as well. Yes, so it can't yeah, go beyond yeah. a certain period. And then... So with completion, you send the money over, documents done, you then go register it with Landreg, kind of do your post-completion. Yeah, so after that, you've got lots of post-completion formalities. So first thing, you've got to consider stamp duty. Okay, your client's just bought a property. They're liable to pay tax a lot of the time. Um, and with any tax, we have to submit a tax return. So an SDLT goes to the land registry, any duties paid if it's applicable. And then you're looking for maybe uh, seller's documents, so they're signed transfer. One of those undertakings that we spoke about earlier is that on completion, that signed TR1 is going to be sent from the seller's lawyer to the buyer's lawyer. Because mm-hmm. you can't register your client's ownership without it. Yeah. You're also going to be waiting for the sellers potentially to have redeemed their mortgage and removed the bank's charge from the title. And then after that, it's making an application to the land registry. Uh, and at the moment, unfortunately... Uh, many people know that the land registry has significant delays. You think you said this for five years? Yeah. <laughs> they put it always, well, always. Particularly since COVID and the stamp duty holiday, um, they are really behind. And, you know, we had some discussions with the land registry and they made a very valid point. And they said to me, well, your business, you could actually turn work away. We can't. We have to deal with every registration. That sounds like a you problem. (laughs) You need to deal with that land register. How can we control what's going to come in? We didn't know the government were going to impose a stamp duty holiday that was going to lead to this volume being dumped on us. Which I think it's all excuses. Not necessarily from the staff, but the government, whoever runs it, Needs to just pull their socks up and do better. Just use tech. Just, just, yeah, just I mean, they still accept like coins, don't they? Like you can, you, like in checks and all sorts of. No, they are digital now. Because uh, I remember I'm a few. I think it was maybe two years ago, November time. They went to, to digital. They're not, unfortunately, not completely digital. Yeah. Again, transfers apart. What's called unregistered. You're still making paper applications. But uh, yeah, the majority of applications that you make now are online, which Thank is good. Thank God, because I remember the last time I had to send money and they said something like, yeah, you need, it was something 50 pound. And I was like, how do I? And they're like, you have to literally send a coin or something. And it was really weird. And I was like, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I just thought, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, find what it was. With, with lawyers, we'd all have an account with them. Yeah, it's stuff. easier yeah, for your yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, but it's... Okay, so that's the process of conveyancing. Now, when it comes to commercial, because some people yeah. watching, listening to this will buy... Uh, you know, commercial shops, whatever yep. it is. Does the process differ massively? Uh, you have to decipher whether you're buying a commercial property, whether you're leasing a commercial property, and whether there's a business being bought at the same time as a going concern. Yeah. If there's a business being bought at the same time as a going concern, totally different because you've got to evaluate contracts, accounts, liabilities, all sorts of stuff. But if we part that one up, yeah. A lot of commercial transactions are more leases than actual commercial buildings or premises being bought. Mm. If it's a commercial premise being bought, then it is largely the same. Um, you'll find that, yeah, normally you might not have a period in between exchange and completion. A lot of those go straight to completion or a simultaneous exchange and completion on the same day. But that process is largely the same. With um, leasing commercial premises, that's totally different. 
there are lots more to consider, um, you know, such as whether you're contracting in and out of the Landlord and Tenant Act. You've got with commercial, you've got VAT that comes into the equation, different stamp duty rates as well. So yeah, it, it's different, but not vastly. Okay. And, you know, going back to what you said earlier, that you are CLC registered. Yep. And then, so your conveyances. Yep. Solicitors are usually SRA regulated, so mm -hmm. they're solicitors. Yep. You're both conveyancing on the same yep. house. Are you doing the same job? Yes. What is, and I know the difference from at least a, a client's perspective in that certain bridging lenders won't work with you. Yes. Because they need two SRA partners. Yes. You know, they can't do a representative yep. for the UK. You know, what, from your perspective as a commencer, as a solicitor, what's the kind of difference between them? There isn't practically. What origin, the, the reason uh, CLC qualification and license conveyances, um, it, it, or the reason we exist, is because it was specialisation. The period and the transaction that you're going to undertake becomes so vast and complicated that it needed specialisation. So the qualification came into fruition. What you've found in terms of SRA and solicitors, you now in the majority, not everybody, not all, but the majority will specialise in one area of law. So you'll normally find that if you are a solicitor, that you've chosen to specialise in conveyancing, or you've chosen to specialise in litigation, matrimonial, something else. Don't often now, you do, there are exceptions, but you don't often get people that do the whole array of uh, law, uh, because there's just so much of it. So. You know, even though that person may have qualified as a solicitor, they're effectively still doing the same job in conveyancing. And also, there are probably more unqualified conveyances than there are qualified. You don't have to be qualified. You can work within a law firm unqualified, uh, also doing the same job. So ultimately, there's not much difference. In terms of bridging, um, again, taking a slight step back, any lender has what we call a panel. And law firms will go on that panel, which will enable them to act for that bank. Those banks have separate criteria. So if we focus maybe on bridging, uh, a lot of uh, bridging lenders are, if we were to really simplify it, maybe we could say they were smaller than maybe like a commercial bank, okay? So their way of looking at things is that they just want a small select group and they will pick solicitors, um, especially if there's more uh, chance of um, other types of law being brought into the equation, like litigation, like commercial. Um, but there are equally other banks that won't instruct licensed conveyances, uh, very few, but there are a couple of them. There are also banks that have criteria such as how many partners that you have. Yeah. Maybe you, know, you need to have three, four, five. Um, some don't allow sole practitioners to go on there. So if you're a one-man band, you can't go on there. But they all just have different criteria yeah. as to what they want for you to then go on their panel. Fine, makes sense. And leasehold and freehold. Mm -hmm. Freehold feels a lot easier. I know when I see a legal pack for freehold, I can read it and buy it, and I'll probably want it past you, but generally I'll probably buy it, and then afterwards Always be like, past me, but yeah. Yeah, um, be like uh, what's wrong with this one now? But leasehold, yeah. I, don't, I don't even bother, because it no. did, did so much. From your end, is leasehold more complex? And I suppose, why is it more complex? It's much more complex, because freehold is simply, uh, you know, the whole uh, area of land or the whole property that's being bought. If you're looking at a leasehold, you've still got a freehold. You can't have a leasehold without a freehold. Mm. So somebody owns that entire piece of land or that entire building. So you've got to investigate that part of it. 
You've then potentially got a lease, which makes it leasehold, okay? You've got to look through the whole of that lease document, which is the kind of rules, the regulation, who can do what on yeah. that whole estate. So there'll be untold bits of information in there that leads into ground rents, estate charges, service charges. Um, you know, you can get defective leases. You've got to be careful the term of the lease because leases that have a low term will often be much yeah. cheaper to purchase. But if you've got to extend the lease, then um, that could be a considerable premium that you've got to pay for that. You've got to look at maybe residence associations. They can be formed in different ways. Management companies. You could be a member of it. You could have shares in it. Yeah, they're totally different. There's they're still, a lot more. Yeah. You, I mean, to put it into some kind of, I don't know, um, to quantify it, there must be at least a third to double, again, as complicated and time-consuming to conduct as a lawyer. I mean, that's what it feels like even to me reading the legal packs because I just open them and I think the language as well seems more complex. There's just more things to read about. And it's... That's definitely, yeah. I just say to people, look, don't even, I don't even bother. I'm just like, just give it to If you think, if you've got a house sitting on a plot of land, okay, you've got to evaluate rights of way. Well, you've only really got rights of way, sort of, uh, how am I going to articulate this? You know, from going from the maybe the public highway onto the area of land. Yeah. If you've got a big block of flat, so you need a right of way to go from the uh, public highway, yeah. potentially into the car park, which yeah. would be underground. You've got to be able to go up lift shafts, up stairwells. You might have a bin store over there, a bike store over there. You've got to have rights of way to go over all that. And then that's just you. You've then got the landlord that has the rights of way. You've got management company that has rights of way. You've got other occupiers that have rights of way. They all intertwine. So it's, yeah, it's a lot more complex. And um, I've got a question here from Shaz, who you know, my mortgage yeah. broker. Uh, he said, legalese why do you lot love talking like your 1500s lawmen <laughs> do you enjoy it or is it just the language of law is just such let me just think how to answer this one <laughs> <laughs> so i would hope that i don't speak like that no no not right, you don't. i would hope that i don't speak like that and i always try and uh, transfer the information that, that i want a client to understand in the most simplistic way possible yeah you do um there are a lot of lawyers that, that, that speak like that. Whether that is specific to law, I don't know. Um, I, I think there is a proportion or a, a certain percentage that, yeah, that is the case. And, and one criticism I do have of our industry is that we don't sell ourselves enough. Quite often we are, on most cases, we're actually solving problems. We are stopping the client making a big mistake or, or, or a money mistake. We're protecting a bank and their security. The level of work that we do, if we get it wrong, has quite a high consequence. And we don't sell that enough sometimes. We don't mm -hmm. say, you know, somebody will ring up for an update. Oh, yeah, I've, I've got these answers to inquiries in. I've done this, I've done this. You know, sometimes it's, you know, this is a big problem, actually, because there's not a right for this property to have electric or not, there's not a right for these drains to be there or there's no build over agreement. But what I've done is I've looked into this. I've gone to the local authority. I've got this agreement. I've found it. I've done this. Yeah, actually, there is a build over agreement. There are rights. It means I've got to put it right back. Blah, 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 blah. But OK, they don't sell what we're doing enough. We're not telling you, the client, there was this problem. Um, it could have prevented you from buying the property, but I fixed it. <laughs> okay and I think maybe as a profession if we did that a lot more yeah, I agree. we would have a lot more gratitude uh, and I think that people would have a bigger understanding in terms of the importance of what we do and, and generally what we do whereas at the moment I think lawyers are poor salespeople. we don't tell clients enough what we do um, and we don't big ourselves up enough um, you know lawyers have a certain 
maybe personality. Okay. And should I say that, you know, we just solve problems. We don't boast about it. And I yeah. think sometimes that is our, our downfall as well. No, I agree. And I think maybe sometimes you have huge caseloads. You get enough business that maybe people think, well, why do I need to make content yeah. and talk yeah. about it when I'm yeah. getting enough? The, the other issue you have, if you have a big caseload, uh, I would suggest that an average caseload may be 30, 40, 50 matters a month that you're, you're dealing with. That's how many people well, you're talking to in terms of clients. A lot. Well, they're all going to be exchanging and completing at different times because life doesn't work in a nice, organised way that today I might look through five contract packs, five exchanges, set something out for completion. What you Never. get is 20 completions on the same day, okay? So the problem you've got is if you're dealing with those 20 completions, you really don't have time then to talk about the person that's just, you know, received their fixture and the fittings form and wants yeah. to talk to you about what's left. Them. So this is the balancing act and this is what makes it very difficult. You know, on a given day, you don't really know at the start of the day what the day could hold. If you had five completions, you might think, that's an easy day. Not five, not too bad. You know, last Friday, I had 25. But last Friday, they all went through no problem. I might only have one completion, but I'm acting for the vendor. He won't move out the property. Okay? I've got the buyer's lawyer on the phone. You know, the, the removals haven't turned up. I'm now got the buyer's lawyer threatening me that he's going to sue our client because they're breaching the terms of the contract. Well, you can't just park that up. Okay, you didn't know that was going to come up that day. And that often is, you know, that plate spinning and managing expectations. I think being realistic, no lawyer should ever promise that they would be available at any time to service yeah. a client's needs because you just don't know what's going to come up. And if you are acting on behalf of a client and looking after their best interests, well then, although it's not great, but the client that wants to talk about the curtains that are going to be left in the property, that client's not as important at that moment than the clients that, you know, are maybe about to breach their contract and or could lose a you know, deposit or something silly like that. So there is a bit of a plate spinning exercise that we do have to go through. And that's, I think, where a lot of skill does come into the job uh, in terms of handling the caseload and where you can be the greatest conveyancer in the world looking at problems and you can be very articulate in terms of your qualifications and maybe you speak with lots of legalese and stuff like that. But you've got to be able to manage 50 people at the same time what's going on. Because all their lives are going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of my questions was, you know, why are so many solicitors slow, don't communicate, kind of so antiquated? But I think that kind of answers it. It's, it's like your destiny isn't in your control. I think we had one um, where I might have cut you a bit short and I had to say, look, I've got another transaction yeah. at the moment. Just that you know, I'm not about it, but I'll let you know soon. Sometimes it, I think it is... People use communication as a buzzword in, buzzword in command all the time. But sometimes I think it's the context of, of, of the word and the way we use it and mm. what people want from it. I think lawyers have this fear that communication means I've got to talk to somebody all the time. Yep. I don't think that's actually what necessarily people want. And then they're not using the word communication necessarily for that. Mm-hmm. I think they just want to know what generally is happening. If I said yeah, to you, yeah, yeah. Ted, I'm in meetings all morning, I can't talk to you, I'm going to have to look at it this afternoon, pre-warn you, Which it you might be say, as yeah. late as 4.35, 6 o'clock tonight. Okay, you might not be overly happy, right, okay. But, but I'm happier. But I will look, I'll, yeah, at least you've heard from me, and I will look at it then. I think it's the context of the word that maybe we don't sometimes get and we fear that we should be talking to people every five minutes all day. I don't think that's what people want. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you just have to be honest and just say, I have to prioritise exchanges and completions. 
And therefore today, unfortunately, because your match has cropped up and it wasn't in the diary to be there or whatever, uh, it's just going to have to wait until they're done. In the same way that when you get to that point, you take priority. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, hopefully people watching and listening to this will understand that, you know, like you said, it's, it's Tuesday, you've got stuff in your diary, you've got stuff planned, but like you said, if stuff comes in, it's happened with the business you just bought, you yeah. can't necessarily drop stuff yeah. and jump on that because yeah. you've got meetings, you've got this. And I think it, sometimes when we, we want to buy things quickly and the seller or the seller's lawyer says, oh, I've sent the stuff, we think, yeah. oh, what's, what's stupid? Yeah. Why isn't he on it? But actually, hold on, let's take a step here. You took four weeks to draft the generic yeah. document and then I'm expecting you to jump on it. I need to be like, hold on a sec. They're idiots. He's just got it. Like, yeah. he, well, there's, two, there's two or three things. Number one, when we're looking through those documents, you, you have to allow a proportion of time to actually look through. Yeah. At the end of the day, you are trying to protect your client, number one. Yeah. Number two, okay, I can tell you now, Friday is the most popular day for people to move. Yep. Okay? So just as a generalisation, the whole conveyancing system will be slower on a Friday. Yep, that's banks, that's lawyers, probably estate agents, probably everybody. Yeah. So if you want things done and you want to contact your lawyer, probably best not to leave it till Friday. If you can get in on Thursday or Wednesday or even leave it to Monday, you have a far better chance of that being the case. Again, maybe as a profession, we don't advertise that enough. Um, but Fridays definitely is going to be a lot, the worst day of the week to get hold of us. Yeah. Um, so... You know, you've got to balance these things up. And, and unfortunately, from a, a fee and a law firm's point of view, because the level of fees that we charge, which have been the way they are for years and years and years, uh, I would obviously be biased and think they should be a hell of a lot more, but... I think they should. I mean, we, 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 they we, are we, we have a client for three, four months. Okay, you know, maybe the fee should be more. But again, you know, law firms in general can't just whack their fees up by double, which they probably should be because we wouldn't get any work. Therefore, we have to undertake a level of uh, matters to be profitable. Yes. Now, fee earners aren't there fee earning. They're called fee earners for a reason. Internally, in law firms, all case handlers are called fee earners because they make the money. And therefore, to make the money, there's a certain amount of cases that they will have to do. That will differ totally from law firm to law firm. Mm -hmm. For example, at PCS, we have different departments front and back end that we try and suck a lot of the work away from the fee earners. So maybe our figures might be higher than say a law firm that may, you know, a fee earner might give the quote, convert it, might deal with the revenue, the land at the end, they might do the whole thing start to finish, for example. And then their figures will be lower. But either way, the theory is still there that they'll have to do a certain amount to be profitable. Mm. And therefore, when you are dealing with volumes of people and matters in any business, there is a juggling act that you have to entail. It makes sense. It's simple economy, simple maths. Yeah. I always say, I will happily, I've said to you, I'll happily pay more yeah. to get a better service. Like if, yeah. if everyone up their fees and the whole landscape changed, I would say most investors, as much as we complain, if we got better service with it, we would. I know all people I know who are serious developers would pay more just to get it done quicker because that cost is so small compared to my bridging cost, compared yeah. to my other yeah, cost, my builder yeah. cost. So, you know, it, it makes sense. And, we, we have a platinum service that, that's that, we, that yeah. we, we advertise and a lot of the time I do say to clients actually don't bother right, okay? don't bother paying me that extra 300 quid because your transaction is of this ilk that actually I've got zero control over it because you've still <laughs> got to go back to the fact that you can pay whatever you give me 10 grand fee okay but if I've got no control over that seller yeah, it's true. and no control over that seller's lawyer 
two big problems, then doesn't matter how much you pay me, I'm not Superman, I'm not going to be able to affect the length of time that that takes. And that, this is the difficulty. This is true. Now, um, to sort of round off the questions, you know, speaking about solicitors talking to each other, not talking to each other, why do I keep getting threatened with litigation from these solicitors that we work with? <laughs> what, what is it about me? Well, it, well, this could be another podcast <laughs> entirely, I think. But, um, well, number one, you have a retainer with your lawyer, okay? So, for example, when I act for you, my retainer's with you. You say, Stu, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. We act for you, your best interests. The other lawyer may be doing exactly what his client has asked him to do. You do not have a retainer with him. That's the key. And I know through personal experience and the volume of clients that I've dealt with for the last sort of 26 years, that there are plenty of occasions where you get asked to, for God's sake, don't tell anybody this, I can't get the mortgage. Um, <laughs> or I need, three, I need another three salary payments before I've got anywhere near the deposit. So you have to drag this out. Um, any chance you can put the handbrake on this, you know, because <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I've just seen one around the corner. I think I'll prefer it. Um, there are loads of reasons why you get told to, to do something or not do something. Another one, again, slightly different because not maybe necessarily to conveyance in, but by the time you might, you know, say, right, okay, this is a business transaction. I might say, right, my bill's going to be £1,000, £2,000. Right, okay, client doesn't pay it. Therefore, I'm not sitting there doing anything at the moment until such time as you pay my fee. I'm not going to tell the other lawyer or Ted that my client's not paid the fee because that's, you know, that information is confidential. So sometimes, yeah, if we're moaning about other lawyers, we have to be careful that actually they may be doing zero wrong. They may be doing exactly what their client has asked them to do. Not saying every single case. Yeah, because <laughs> in mind, I think this list... That is, that's use. probably a very lawyer answer. Yeah, that, is, <laughs> that is a very lawyer answer. But it's funny because the second I email them, they respond. You do it for four weeks and they just think nothing. But I get involved and they call you up. They inter- and I'm like, where was that energy mm. when we requested documents four weeks ago? They're very touchy. But, th- but this is also why I do it and I'll continue to do it. Yeah. I'm never yeah. going to stop because it this, works. This is always the, the, the thing is that, you know, the more I always laugh at that, you know, if you put a review up and, and all of a sudden they're on the phone, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe if I actually just done this in the first place. There would be a review. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know. I mean, is it strange? Because, I mean, from my point of view, you know, Generally, personally, I'm getting paid when the transactions are going through, so my interest is completely vested. You, know, you could argue that maybe somebody takes a salary at our industry, not synonymous with, with bonuses or commission. Uh, potentially, if there was a commission element, maybe things would go through quicker. Who knows? Yeah. But um, you know, I, I would say, and this is totally contrary to maybe what you think, that I would say that most lawyers are working to the best of, of, of their sort of capacity. <laughs> I what you, you, you having particularly unlucky with some of yours yeah. and some of the transactions that you've undertook. Um, and there's also an element that, you know, sometimes people do have to do various drafting um, yeah. and bits and bobs and, and you know, and, and, and it is difficult to get this point across, but lot, there are lots of occasions where clients come to you, you start something, Oh, and I, I didn't you, yeah. tell you about this. Oh my goodness! Well, that's a whole new, you know, transaction. You know, I had one the other day. It's a remortgage. Client is going absolutely ballistic. Needs to get this done. Needs to get this done. Brokers going mad. 
need to get this completed, completed. Right, okay, yeah, we'll run around, ringing up, hanging on the phone forever, chasing people up, literally about to complete it. Um, and the client goes, oh, when you get that ready, I'm, I'm, I'm about to exchange my purchase. What do you mean the purchase? You didn't tell me about the purchase. Oh yeah, I've got a purchase, I'm also buying somewhere. Right, okay, <laughs> or does the bank know this? Because if we complete this, then that might be in breach of your lending there. Do you know this? No. Um, so very often, I think from a client's point of view, especially the inexperienced buyer, there could be a bit of a, you know, they don't quite know who to trust. Yeah, you've got your yeah, lawyer, yeah. whom you might have less communication with. You've got your estate agent, who you could be you know, backwards and forwards, but often you know, they're representing the seller, yeah. not the buyer. So yeah. there's that sort of uh, difference. Then you've got your broker. Um, so you quite often have three varied people that might give you contradictory information as to what's happening yeah, and what yeah, to do. Yeah. So I do, I can't, I can't get it, I get the whole thing. Yeah, I, I can see that, yeah, there will be inexperienced buyers, and I know I've worked with those, but yeah, like you said, I just seem to get solicitors who want to like exchange NDAs with you. Like this is, uh, when you told me that, I just, and the fact you've never done this in your life, yeah, I just thought if you've never done it, this is stupid. Yeah, yeah. You, you 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 can you can do things like that. Okay, <laughs> there's various processes that you I'm, can. Like, you know, I mean, normally you you know you you've got to be like, what am I doing here? You know, that that is an agreement that both parties sign once it's you know completed. Okay, we're we're bound by it. But yeah, that's the third it's, NDA. Exchange, exchanging contracts is something where you're committing somebody to do something in a period of time, which might be a week later. Normally with NDA, you're going to you know be completely straight away because once you've signed it and you're receiving confidential information, that's what the mechanisms get the transaction going. But you know, again, with my lawyer hat on, you don't know what you've been told to do once you've advised the client and certain things like that. So yeah. you know, I don't want to come across as uh, sitting on the fence, but. Yeah, there is a balance to the whole I thing. I think it's good to have your balance because I'm yeah. not balanced. I, yeah. I, I, I'm in the camp of, I think the thing is, because I understand it from learning from you and the process, like, you know, when they took four weeks to send over the um, like purchase agreement, I read it and said, this is a template. Mm. He added eight lines, I think I saw maybe. Fine, they're the eight most important lines in this yeah. whole transaction. But I just thought you did not need four weeks to do that. And I think when you understand, because I've seen the speed you do things, I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. Yes, but for example, if we go back to this situation, yes, it could be a standardised document that you receive, but did that lawyer have the information he needed to draft that? Yeah, Start this, you need to talk to your client to find out what they are doing. Did that conversation take place? We have, for example, meetings booked in. They're remote now, of course, sometimes in person, but meetings booked in. 50% of the time, the clients probably cancel those and then reschedule the next week because they're too busy or whatever the case may be. Perhaps you didn't have clear instructions. Yes, it might have been an easy draft, an easy job, but did you have the instructions in the first place to enable you to complete that draft? It's a different story. Did you service a bill? Were you going to... I mean, we're talking particularly here about more business acquisitions and conveyancing, but, you know, in that circumstance, was there a bill... Uh, I've actually had clients in the past where historically I've done jobs for them where they actually owed the practice money. And I've said, well, I'm not going to do any of that now. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So there are lots of reasons as to why. I am making excuses a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you are. I'm, I'm being I, I am, I am yeah, making excuses yeah. a bit. I'm sitting on the fence a bit. But it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Every yeah. transaction is different. You're dealing with people a lot of the time and there can be so much variance on, 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 on what might happen. I agree. And I think being informed and educated as a client helps massively because I know to an extent what you're doing, 
when you're doing it, kind of how long it takes. Obviously, I think it should be done quicker. That's just <laughs> any client. But I kind of understand in the extent that I don't need to... Like, when I buy my next property, uh, we know the process. So I'm just going to... You know, it is... And therefore, it makes your life easier. Yep. It makes my life easier. I know I'm only going to hear from you when there's an update. And that's fine because I know how long it takes. It might chase, it might chat. But if I didn't, I was wet behind the ear, especially when it comes to a commercial investment type thing or even a business acquisition, which ours was, I think, fairly simple. But some of the people I know are buying really complex stuff. Yeah. It just means that this works a lot harder. It's a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more time. You'll have to explain stuff to me. So I think where possible, and hopefully this podcast does this, you know, people need to get educated and understand. And you've got your conveyancing matters, which we're about to record as well yeah. on your YouTube, which explains a lot of these things. Because to be fair, there aren't books on it. There aren't really. You've got a podcast on it as well. Yeah, we've got uh, we call it PCS Pods, PCS uh, Pods. which is uh, very helpful, especially for people that are new to buying, that are looking to undertake their first purchase. Maybe it has interviews on there with removal companies, with surveyors, mm. uh, all different. Uh, people within the sort of chain of events that, that will have their little input into yeah, the commencement yeah. process. Well, so, I'll yeah. put a link to that. So yeah, yeah, great. listen to that. And let's do last question. Go on. Where, so we're in 2023, we're in summer, although I'm wearing a jumper because <laughs> the, the weather doesn't really... I didn't notice. I thought I wanted the yellow edge tops. Uh, you know, I'm, just, I'm switching it's up. It's quite disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get you one. I'm just, I'm switching it up. I'll get you a test tie. Then you can actually Even better. You can actually wear it at work. Um, where is PCS Lee going to be in five years? In five years, that's a, a difficult one. I, for me, the landscape's massively changing and conveyancing, maybe the legal profession, ha, at the moment is being pushed heavily with tech. Good. And the outside world is trying to force, good and bad, is trying to force tech um, and trying to automate a lot of processing. And the theory behind that, I've got no problem with. However, at the moment, with the volume of transactions that we undertake, there's obviously a lot of money within this industry that people are trying to maybe cash in on, trying to invent maybe solutions, possibly for problems that we don't have. Mm -hmm. And for me, what I would like to see and where I would like the, our practice to go and what we're trying to do at the moment is actually create products that actually help the process. And it's identifying when the process starts to when the process ends but not just for conveyancing, for the client's moving process. So I think it's double-sided. And what we need to do is we need to be able to get from when that matter starts to when that matter finishes in a lot more, you know, a slicker way, a slicker way of working uh, through integration um, with different platforms, whether that be search providers, land registry, revenue. And yeah, that's where I would like to see us, more integration, more tech, you know, modern tech. We need to use modern tech to aid these transactions but the one thing for me, the absolute key, is we do not want to lose sight of our traditional values, and that is that we're our family-run law firm based in service, and I never want that client to have to dial in and quote reference one, two, three, four, five, six. You know, if I'm their lawyer, I want them to ring in and say, "Can I speak to Stuart, please?" Again, get put through to me, and you know, for all the case trackers in the world that there could be, and emails and everything else, you know, I think being multi communicative insofar as there's still an element and a, a place for picking that phone up and having that conversation and if you are being you know kyc know your client you're being diligent on what they're doing in terms of rules money laundering aml everything that's going on i don't think you can do it if it's an automated process and just that i'm boring now but you know that reduces skill set as well 
So I think there's a balance between the two. I think it's trying to use this modern tech, but not, you know, to the you know the disadvantage of skill set and providing that personal circum, you know, personal service. When the client goes to their house and puts in their keypad, one two three five, okay, and the door opens. Maybe we're going down that road one day, but at the moment we still have a key. We still have a key in the door. It's very personal still, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. So more tech, but still maintaining the humanity and the personal touch that we still need as humans, despite AI and everything else. Amazing. Stu, thank you so much for coming on the Test Talks podcast. Pleasure.